0: In case you forgot, you are listening to the Beers with Engineers podcast, and this is episode number three. Today my guest is Ralph Thibodeau, an engineer and program manager who I have known for about 20 years. At the beginning of our conversation, I learned there are a few things we have in common that I didn't know about before. Unlike me, Ralph has spent most of his career at just one company, with a couple of stints working at other companies that he found to be very beneficial. We also learned that sometimes there's a negative impact to having a big salary, and that sometimes companies and cultures change, so that while the job may not have changed, it's time for you to change. Jobs, that is. Finally, we talk about Moose. That is Ralph's nickname for his son, Josh. While we were never referred to him as Moose, we did talk a good bit about it. So with that, let's get started. I think you'll enjoy it. All right, hello, podcast world. Welcome to the Beers with Engineers podcast. I am your host, Bert Ushold, and I would like to introduce my guest today, Ralph Thibodeau. Ralph, say a quick hello. Hi, everybody. Ralph works for Jable Healthcare in Clinton, Massachusetts. He graduated from the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. Uh, we locals call that UMass Lowell. Uh, we first worked together about 20 years ago on an inhaler project. Uh, I was over my head as a project manager for the engineering and design team as there was a lot going on. Ralph came on as the PM for the manufacturing group. It's kind of a sister company across the street and his experience and skill helped us get the job done, helped keep the customer happy and kept me from going completely off the wall instead of just partially off the wall. Uh, that project resulted in a lot of future business for our company. I don't think it ever panned out too much for you guys. Uh, we will talk about that project, most likely some, and try to determine whether or not Ralph is Or is not, in fact, a details guy. Uh, Yes, there's a story about that. And uh, one final thing I'll say about Ralph before I hand it over to him. One thing I remember fondly about Ralph, the good guy, whenever he was on uh, the phone with his wife at work, before we'd hang up, he'd say, I love you. And uh, do you still do that? Every time. Very good. Very good. All right. That was my, my brief intro. Anything egregious that you want to add or that I said or whatever.
1: No, uh, I mean, yeah, we worked on that pro that Inhala project. It was a successful project. Actually, it it's in the market now. It's
0: branded differently, but it's diaper uh, in- molding it or no. Jable molding it? No. Nope. Okay. So uh yeah. I knew they eventually finally got that inhaler out after 10 or 15 years or something like that.
1: It's a it's a different medicine, but it's definitely out and it's exciting. It was exciting to see. I actually uh, it came back to Nypro for a while, and we ended up doing the final clinical trials on it.
0: Um, okay.
1: It was one of it was for lack of a better term, it was controversial inside of Nypro. And I told management, me and Mark Robichaud, told management, we don't care what you want. We're gonna we're gonna build these clinical trials, and hopefully we can get the business. Um, yeah. Put a feather in my cap but for with the customer, but not necessarily in my organization. Um oh, yep. an introduction to me. I like you said I went to UMass Lowell. Technically I went to U Lowell. It was you know, that's how old I am. It was you Oh, really? It was U okay. when I was there. Um I graduated in nineteen ninety with a plastics engineering degree. I got lucky enough to be hired by NIPRO in ninety one. I've been with Nitro. Now it's called J- Jabel. Bought us out in 2013, uh, 2016, I think. Uh, excuse me. Um, and and from there, I've been there off and on for 28 years. Okay. I do various. I roles. did
0: not know that. Uh, sorry. Okay. I didn't know that uh, UMass Lowell had changed its name. It's kind of like the uh, I went to the University of Detroit, and two years later, it merged with another school across town, and so now it's University of Detroit Mercy. So, so. The, the long, everyone work gives me shit about
1: being the, the, the historian, but the historian of, of Lowell, it originally was Lowell Tech and Lowell State. Okay. Lowell State was the nursing and education school. Lowell right. Tech was the engineering school. So they okay. were two separate schools. And I don't remember what year, but they combined and became Lowell. And then I think it was like 92 when it officially became UMass Lowell. And guys like M- Mark Joyce, I'm not sure if you know Mark, um, I know Mark. Yep, Mark Joyce had the option when he graduated he had to either put U Lowell, UMass Lowell on his diploma, because that was right yeah the, the
0: yeah Detroit changed. I graduated '88. uh It changed in '90, and the first year or two, students had the choice of which one they wanted to put on there. Nice. So I had uh, a bunch of friends that had to go through that choice. The other interesting thing about my college or my degree. So my degree is a bachelor of mechanical engineering, as opposed to the vast majority of people. It's a bachelor of science in mechanical engineering. Uh, why they did that? I don't know for sure, but the difference at Detroit anyways, was if you went through the co-op program, which they were big in the co-op program, you got a bachelor's of mechanical engineering or whatever, but if you did not co-op, you got a bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering. That's why you're so smart. Thing. That's why I am so smart. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Okay. So last time, last couple of times we've finished with the engineering joke. I'm going to start with the engineering joke. You got a good engineering joke for Ralph. I don't. I mean, I hate to say it. I'm not that funny
1: anyways. So I don't really pay it's... attention to jokes. So I apologize. Just remember... I, I don't
0: have one. Just remember jokes that people told you. Come on. Oh, well. Hey, Ralph, you are. To say you're not that funny, I would disagree with that. But I'm not, I, okay. again, I'm not good good at
1: memorizing and remembering jokes and telling okay. them when. I mean,
0: the only one I is like,
1: the only joke I know, and it's not an engineering joke, is how to catch a polar bear. How? So you cut a hole in the ice. You put a bunch of peas around the hole. And when he comes up to take a pee, you kick him in the ice hole. <laughs> so that's the again that's as bad of the joke there as I, I can do, so that's about you know there's high, my, high
0: quality stuff there's, c- min- there's my c minus there's my
1: c minus joke for your birth. all right all right we'll take it we'll take it
0: all right so why did you become an engineer why engineering why plastics so
1: it's kind of a double edge like why engineering and then why plastics um I was always good in math and sciences and Kind of, it kind of intrigued me more the the engineering side of it, right? I, I was good with my hands. I was a carpenter in high school and college, um, so I was kind of intrigued with that. I didn't really know necessarily really young when I was going to school. I was 17 years old, um, so kind of felt engineering was the right fit for me with that with the math and sciences type aspect. Um, I, I got into UMass Lowell as a civil engineering major. And again, not really understanding what I wanted to do, but I knew that going in. Like I didn't know what full engineering I wanted to go into. So I spent that freshman year interviewing different people and talking to different people: mechanical, electrical, civil, all those different aspects. And um, I met a plastic engineer. um, One of my freshman friends was this woman was a chemical engineer. And her, the woman next to her was a plastic engineer. We got to talking about the different degrees and she spoke about how hands-on it was and how intricate it was at Lowell. Like, so, and she's like, let's go take a walk. And we walked through, uh, a, one of the buildings called ball hall and ball hall has injection molding machines, blow molding machines, extrusion, all the different aspects of the plastics industry. And that really intrigued me from the point of view of being hands-on. I'm not, again, I'm not a great student by any stretch of the imagination, and I don't want to claim to be. Um, I was good in math and sciences. Everything else, I was pretty much terrible at. Um, so this intri- intrigued me to be hands-on and actually learn how to do the ask and the intricacies of actually manufacturing it
0: and, uh, and those 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 things. That's not greatly different from how I, you know, I chose engineering just sort of. Felt right, didn't know exactly what, but uh, the decision was made for me actually before I went to college, there was me and another guy in high school. I have no idea who chose us or chose me anyways to go on a field trip. So you want to go on this field trip? I said, all right, sure, I guess. And it was to, so I grew up in, uh, outside of Buffalo. This was a manufacturing, I'm sorry, an uh, engineering company in Buffalo right near the airport. I think it was called CalSpan. And, you know, among the things they did and showed us, also it's a car crash test. That was pretty cool. Uh, they had doing some medical stuff. They're working on like artificial blood vessels and things like that. Uh, lots of uh, wind tunnel testing. Uh, one thing I remember, they had wind tunnel testing for the space shuttle. And what was very memorable about that, it was like, you know, they has got this big tank, they jacked it up like, I don't know, 10,000 PSI or something crazy like that. And then they release it and they get, you know, two seconds of time with this little small model of the space shuttle and they got their information. But what was most memorable to me was, you know, I guess they had a valve to release the air. But right before the test chamber was like a quarter inch piece of aluminum, as I recall. And they showed us a before and after, before they had it scored. So when the air would hit that, it would, you know, less fracturing of bits into their test parts. So they showed us before, then they showed us an after. And from my memory, it looked like a steel rod just went through that. Nice. You know, it wasn't like the sides were sort of angled. My memory is they were like straight out. I mean, there's probably a couple of degrees of off of perpendicular, but my memory is I was, that was pretty impressive. So that just said, Hey, if that's what a mechanical engineers do, that's what I want to do. Yeah, that's the cool aspect of when you actually,
1: like, you got the mentoring and see what an engineer does. I kind of just was winging it, for lack of a better term, until I got to Lowell. So Right, right.
0: Yeah, I, who that person was, my best guess is maybe my guidance counselor, but I don't know who it was. <laughs> but someday, if I find out who that person is, I will thank them. And uh, I am also recalling that I'm amiss in uh, one of our startup procedures. A, are you drinking a beer? B, if yes, what? If not, what beer would you like to be drinking? So I'm not drinking beer. I'm not tipp
1: I will drink beer every so often, but I'm more of like a, a straight whiskey type of guy. And I'm drinking Tully Mordor Irish whiskey.
0: Oh, very good. Very good.
1: So I'm sorry All to, well, to I, break uh, the rules of beers with engineers drinking whiskey, but it was a, it was a good call on a cold night.
0: Well, as I uh, revealed to the world in my last podcast, I don't drink beer at all. But uh, beers with engineers sounds better than bourbon with engineers. So so there you go. (laughs) But bourbon with engineers is so much more fun. That's right. That's right. And uh, a a buddy of mine who is also an engineer, we'll get him on here sometime. And well, since you're not drinking bourbon, you're drinking whiskey. Saying that uh, he and I will have the first episode of bourbon with engineers. So. (laughs) Cool. All right, so uh, Nipro is your first job out of college? My first job out of college, yeah. Uh,
1: so I I knew about Nipro. Lowell and Nipro were very in, entwined together. You would um, the the Lowell uh, Society of Plastic Engineers would run actually a field trip to Nipro, and they would take us on big tours to the building. You know, so it was really cool. I actually went to Nipro probably in 1988 and for me nipro was the benchmark coming out of little where i wanted to go to hmm. work
0: now was that me? was that a sort of a universal thinking Everyone said i want to go to nipro or was that just sort of a, a ralph thing
1: there were a lot of people that wanted to go um okay. i mean the high, i'm going to say the higher gpa guys they were looking at like gm sabic you know but for me nipro was was the flagship of of injection molding at the time and one of the, mm-hmm. it was it was the biggest cu- custom injection mold, excuse me. So as far as if you're looking to go into the injection molding field, it was the flagship coming out of all.
0: Mm-hmm. And what sorts of things did we do when you first started? Oh
1: How my god, I, have... I was absolute slave labor. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So Napier used to have they used to call it a man- management trainee program and that's what I was hired right. into. Okay. So so you do like a six month month rotation in engineering and then you do six months in manufacturing. You might do six months in um customer service, you know, just a different smattering of jobs inside of Nitro Clinton. Um so my first rotation was uh basically a project engineer. So the project the, the project engineers that weren't management trainees bossed me around. The program managers broke bossed me around and I was deployed to, um, everybody. So anyone needed anything. Hey, Ralph, what do you got going on? We're going to, we want you to do this. Um, perfect example, Gillette. We were just, we were just launching at the time the Gillette sensor. So again, I date myself as far as what razors look like. That was a, a three blade <laughs> razor. And they had a, a incredibly stringent, um, mold validation package that again, okay not understanding what a validation package was at 23, 24 years old, as I compared to what I do now. And they had amazing fixtures. Gillette is an awesome company to work with, with, with their molding and, and their gauges and their fixtures. So I actually did, I, I became a metrology engineer. I sat there and measured a gazillion parts for the, and, mm. and documented every one of you know, the dimensions so that the quality engineer could write a final summary report on, on these. That was one of the aspects I worked on. I did some mechanical testing. We had drop testers inside of uh, that, you know, we were having some issues with some plastic parts. So I did some drop testing and ro- rope reports. When I was When I was not occupied being slave labor, I was assigned to probably one of the best process engineers that we have, we had at the time. And I was I was to follow him and learn how to do process engineering. Who was that? That was Ed Valley, the Ed Valley junior. So Ed Valley, the third is still, I think I ever met him. Never met Ed Valley. Oh, he was a great guy. Not that I recall. He passed away probably about like five or six years ago, but what a great guy, such a smart process engineer. I learned so much from him. And, you know, I, I joke about those days. I mean, I might've been an operator, like they needed an operator, to pack parts, Ralph go, go be an operator, pack parts. Um, go do this uh, welding study, we were trying to get into a customer and we wanted to prove that we were, we could do everything. So we could, so again, you know, Nipro, Nipro's building is probably a mile long. Uh, I worked at every end of the building, every division, met everybody along the way. It was, for me, it was awesome from that point of view. Mm -hmm. I did, I touched Mm -hmm. everything. I learned everything. I learned all these people people knew that I would be able to do anything and that kind of helped me in my career. Again, as a program manager, I could go to the floors and ask people to do something and when people would tell me they can't do it, it'd be like, why can't you do it? And it kind of helped me through that. Like I can do that. Why can't you do that type of thing? Um, and helped me succeed as a program manager.
0: That's cool. I had a, I'll call it baptism by fire. It was my second job. It was, uh, Ethicon, Division of Johnson Johnson, making uh, medical devices and staplers and things like that. Was that in Cincinnati or Connecticut? That was Cincinnati. Okay. idea. Yeah. And, you know, I had, you know, no manufacturing experience at the time. Didn't know plastics uh, from a hole in the wall. And they had a, so there's an existing product they called the RL60. And they wanted to try out a new staple design. The RL60 was a stapler. And they want to try a new staple design to try and use it in a different application uh, inside the body. And so they had done some testing of it and they said, all right, you know, we want to uh, use, it in, use it in a human. It was a very controlled situation. They would use it, see if it worked. Even if it worked, they're going to take it out. If it didn't work, you know, they're right there with something else. So it's safe, but you still had to go through all the hoops to use a device in a human. Mm-hmm. And so I was given that simple project. Yeah, here, take this new stapler and make it work. We want to do these clinical trials in a month or two or whatever it was. And every door I opened, there was two more doors. You know, it's like, do you have your design history file? What's a design history file? <laughs> do you get your? <laughs> I mean, what's the product name? Oh, I can't call it RL sixty. No, we already have an RL sixty. And so, I made up a name, the RL sixty mod one. Oh, you can't use that. That's too many digits. it Has to be five. and there uh, there were a couple of quality engineers I ended up working with quite a bit one was probably just a few years older than me and the other one was uh, a bit older and he had a reputation of being kind of a crotchety guy but I think he felt sorry for me because like you know he'd see me walking towards his office he goes oh geez what bird got for me now (laughs) and (laughs) I just on a not just half of the hoops I had to go through, but it was, you know, it turned out to be a good experience. You know, I got, I touched a lot of different things. You know, I got out onto the floor of the manufacturing. I got through the quality department. I got through the, the regulatory department. You know, I was not, maybe I was told, I don't know. I don't remember it being, it sounds like yours was kind of a plan. You know, we want you to touch all these things. Uh, if that was somebody's plan for me, again, they didn't tell me. They were planning my life without letting me know about it. But uh, it's worked out, so I'm not too upset.
1: Oh, those for, those are my first six months that wasn't planned that was like again anything that no one wanted to do i had to do it's pretty much what it came down to it's okay, like yeah i don't okay. i don't want to do these measurements ralph go do this and, and again right, right. I, I i was a very humble person at that point i wanted to learn i wanted yep. to work hard i wanted to prove to people you know that i'm here to work and i want to outwork I, and my, my mentality was i'm going to work outwork anybody So it doesn't matter what you give me. I'm not going to complain about it. I'm going to do it.
0: See, one thing I realized, I think it was about 10 years or so as an engineer, getting your engineering degree doesn't prevent you from having to do crap jobs every now and again. But when you do have to do do those crap jobs, you're getting pretty well paid for it. You're doing the metrology, you're doing assembling stuff, but you're getting paid more than the regular person doing that. Exactly. Okay, so just... I thought you said you were in some sort of uh, management program or the part of maybe your first six months was just sort of random, you know, routes a gopher boy. But it sounded like after that, there was a sort of a plan thing for. So, so there for was. And again, there.
1: it was kind of it was kind of it, as the, as the so the first six months was was the project engineer um, and then kind of a process engineering position opened up in one of the divisions. And it was it, it, again. When I say planned, it was hopefully something opens up that we can move you into a position. It was really back then at Nipro. It wasn't really all that structured. They they wanted mm-hmm. it to be, but right. like I said, so I went into this process engineering position. um And again, it was in the division that we were making the the molds for contact lenses. So i again, I was in there working, doing anything I could do. I was, you know, if they needed weekend supervisors, I did weekend supervisor, a bunch of different stuff. But the process engineering is really what I, I, at that time I started excelling at. Um, So into that role, probably four or five months and the, the operation manager of that division really liked me. And he offered me a full-time position at that point. So I took the full-time position and I jumped out of the management trainee program at that point. And I stayed, that was when I stayed, I stayed with Nitro in that position for probably almost a year. And that's when, uh, hymenetics, a medical device manufacturer, they, yep. they were looking for a third shift supervisor. And, uh, I really wasn't looking. I don't even know why I kind of actually even interviewed, um, But I did, and it was actually, they gave me about a 50% increase in pay. It's a nice increase in pay. It was a very nice increase in pay, but it's third shift. And uh, I learned the hard way that, you know, 50% increase in pay comes with some pain. Um, And I took that job, and I I did that job for probably about a year and a half. Um, And I was miserable. It was a a Were they in
0: Cambridge? They were in Braintree. Braintree.
1: I don't know where they are now they they bought some of paul biomedical a while ago and i think they might have mm-hmm. actually moved into the paul biomedical sites but yeah that was a painful year and a half that was an interesting company in kind of um in a growth phase where they had just gone public they had just been growth you know they're starting to the, the cross over into that billion mark which i from what i've seen you cross into that billion mark it becomes making getting to the billion. Is easier than getting to two billion for a lot of companies, mm. um, and they they just crossed into that. So it was a really doggy uh, dog company at that time. I've I heard it's a great company now. I, I've heard people that really love it, um, but I couldn't I couldn't stand I couldn't live there anymore. And I've been interviewing, and then Nipro again fell back in my lap, and I went back to Nipro.
0: So you're a double boomerang. Tonight,
1: bro. I'm on my third tour of tour duty.
0: Yeah, so you left once, came back, left another time, and came back. Uh-huh. What was the, the second time you left? That was after we had worked together for a couple of years or so. Yep. Uh, what drove that? I don't recall. <sighs> Again, it's, there's a level of, I'm going
1: to say, it, uh, lack of respect, lack of money. I think at the time, I mean, I was, I was a young guy and I was making a decent wage, but there were people around me that weren't getting as much done in the company as I were, and they were making more money than I was.
0: Mm, that's frustrating.
1: Uh, and it became very frustrating. And symbol tech, this again, I wasn't really looking. A recruiter hit me up and I figured I'd just talk to him. You know what? You know, I'm not really looking, but let's see what happens. And symbol technologies is on Long- in Long Island, New York. And it was a, career change a job change it was a bunch of different things it was i was leaving engineering move family move family move i was leaving engineering and going into um commodity management i was actually becoming a source manager you know we had i had about i want to say i had like 60 million dollars in spend that i had to manage so it it, it intrigued me to handle like again take on a different challenge Mm -hmm. um and Again, the salary they were offering was probably about a 30% increase from what I was making, and I was kind of hoping that NIBO would counter in the back of my mind, type of thing, like, okay, if they counter, then then maybe I I will uh, I'll stay. And it didn't happen, so we took the position. And then, long story short, Symbol got bought by Motorola, another great company, but. Motorola was in that phase where Apple, the iPhone was coming out and BlackBerry was taking over the market. So there was kind of, they were struggling. And then again, a very, I don't like controversial con- companies, like when people are getting upset with everybody and f- everybody's fighting over silly things.
0: Yeah, it's no fun.
1: And that's what was happening. And I, a good friend of mine, it was actually, it was, it was, a, it was a Friday afternoon or I think it was a Thursday afternoon and a good friend of mine, him and I had gotten into an argument over stupid stuff. And I'm like, this isn't who I am. This is not what I want to be. This is not how I want to live with my job and my family and all that. And I called a a friend of mine at night and said, Hey, you got anything I'm I'm looking to leave. Um, And he called me back. He left a message. He called me back the next day. And he's like, "Yep, let let me let me make three phone calls, and I'll call you on Monday." And he called me on Monday, and he offered me a job. And I, I pretty much awesome. left after
0: that. So it sounds like it wasn't the job that you didn't like anymore; it was the company had changed under you. Would that be accurate? Oh, for Motorola, hundred percent.
1: The, the yeah. when we were Symbol Technologies, and the team of people I had around me was a fun group of guys. We worked hard. You know, I was learning a lot. It was a you really challenged me from, like I said, going from program management to commodity management and, and managing suppliers and, you know, negotiating prices or negotiating contracts. It was definitely an interesting job. Would I have lasted long term on Long Island? That could have been tricky. I don't know <laughs> if that would have lasted, but the company was a good company. And I really liked symbol yep. technology and the people that I worked with. And that that's why I ended up leaving Motorola because the people that I enjoyed, we were fighting. And I didn't want to do that.
0: Was it? Were there a lot of new people that came in, and the people you had worked with no, left, or just, the people changed under the culture? It was,
1: but part of the culture, you know, your benchmarks, your targets, people yeah. trying, you know, protect territory. It was a lot of just petty crap, for lack of a better term. And I just didn't want so, to get into that.
0: So a new company culture and behavior came in, and people changed. That's a. Is that, is that? I think that's right. Is that? Yeah, scope? I mean, said,
1: yeah. I was middle management, and, and the level above me was getting squeezed, and and right. they were protecting territory, protecting what we said, what we didn't say, and it was just—it became too political for me, and that's just not, like I said, not what I wanted to do. Yep. yep. Now they got bought out again, and it looks like it's great. A lot of the people that I work with, are I communicate, I still talk to them on Facebook or LinkedIn. And they're enjoying what they're doing.
0: That's good. That's good. All right. So that's a a good snapshot of your career. Maybe a long long snapshot, big snapshot. Sorry. Whatever you want to call it. (laughs) No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, Since we talked a bit about um, you starting out, any advice for – I got three advice questions I'll ask you. Okay. Uh, Advice for young engineers starting out. Vice advice for engineers,
1: young engineers, your college professors are very talented. They're very smart. But when you graduate, you have a foundation. You don't have a house. Right. Look to the senior engineers. Learn from them. You can learn from good engineers and you can learn from bad engineers. Understand what's the difference is. Basically, figure that out on your own. Understand who's good, who's bad. And emulate their goods and eliminate their bads.
0: I would say even with the bad engineers, there's probably, there's two ways you can learn. You can learn what not to do. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and even, I think even a bad engineer will have some good things you can learn from even good engineers have some bad habits that you can learn to avoid. That's what I'm saying is you basically
1: absorb the best of everybody that you work with when you work with them. And when you see negatives or things that you don't like, or don't you watch like, again, I had a career where I watch program managers alienate customers and do things that I'm you're sitting there going, why is he doing this? Or why is she doing this? And I basically put a mental note, learn this, don't do this when, when you're a program manager, because you're not gaining the trust of the people you work with. And, and again, you're not doing the right things. So right. like I said, Learn from their best. Everybody has goods and bads. Don't get me wrong. I I, I should have said bad engineer, but everyone has goods and bads. But take away the goods and use their goods and learn not to do their
0: bads. All right. So as a program manager for an injection molding company, maybe say a little bit about what you do day to day, and then what do you wish your customers would know before they came to you? What would make somebody a good customer for you?
1: It's a really good question. You didn't have that on the list. That's not fair.
0: I'm sorry. sorry.
1: (laughs) No, I. I mean, what do I do day to day? Um, React. I mean, I hate to say it. In a program management world, you define your schedule, and then you have to react to it on a daily basis. You know, things aren't. It's not a perfect world. So if something happens that derails you, you have to be creative. You have to figure out what what can you do to get us back online and troubleshoot today for tomorrow.
0: you know, So that's what you do as a PM. What do you wish customers would do better or different? What, what, what do I wish customers would do better or different? You
1: know, I, I hate to say this, and this is a, a, a canned answer. I've had some great customers. Along the way, just listen. You know, when we tell you something can't be done, well, then – you know, don't, don't pound on the table and say that it has to be done. But I mean, it very, that very really happens, you know, be, be patient. Sometimes there are times that in our world, something that we think takes 10 days may take 35 or 40 and yeah, be patient. Yeah. That's all I can. I mean, that's all I'd ask of a customer. Like I said, most of the customers I've had have been amazing.
0: There was a, a very interesting experience I had. It was, when I was working at Radius, a sister company to, to Nipro 20 years ago, working on a phone with Nokia. And I forget the exact details, but we we're on some sort of conference call. It was us, Nokia, and a third, a third party, which was another supplier to Nokia. And the, the Nokia PM very politely ripped that customer a new one. Uh, you know they were screwed up and she came down on them pretty hard. And then as soon as she hung up, or as soon as they had gone off the phone, it was just Nokia and us. She said, sorry guys, that you had to hear that. You know, they've been messing up. I just had to come down on them hard. It's what my boss wanted me to do. And it was just kind of interesting seeing sort of both sides uh, of the perspective. But the other thing you mentioned a minute ago was you're know, reacting on a day-to-day basis. So I'm going to, take that and go back to the little teaser at the beginning of detail guy so the project we were working on do you remember that i remember the project we were working no. on i'm not sure if i remember this story but we'll, we'll... You remember this quite all right well i'll i'll, uh, I'll refresh your memory <laughs> uh, so so part of the project we were having daily meetings you know it was you know eight theater nine o'clock it's like all right what did you get done yesterday you got that done you didn't get done okay now what are we gonna get done today because that's where we were at the project and you know, you quickly, you know, that's where you decided needed to be done.
1: That's where you decide to uh, react, right? That's the, that's, right, that's right, the daily right. meeting. There. What are we reacting to today?
0: Yeah, sort of the kind of takeoff of the, the military slogan, plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. So further on in that project, when it was not quite as crazy as it was at that particular time, you, know, both you and I both individually were talking to the customer uh, for various things. And I remember Brian Noble. Brian, we love you. We're going to just make a little fun of you right here, maybe. Love you, Brian. Um, you, you know, he called you up and sort of, I forget exactly how you related to me, but he complained a little bit or said something to the fact that you weren't a detail guy. And you're, I think, mildly offended. And said, so what do you mean by that? Because, well, Bert, I call him up and it's like he's got everything right at his fingertips. And if he doesn't have it, he's got like one phone call and he gets the answer for you. And are you remembering this yet? A little bit, I think. A bit. And then I think your response to Brian is, well, Brian, who do you think he calls <laughs> with that one call to get the answer? It's me. <laughs> I do remember that comment
1: now. Yes. You remember
0: that now? Yes. But, uh, yeah, no, that was pretty fun. it's that was funny. It's
1: funny. Brian fun. and I, when he, when he retired, we had a uh, an in-depth conversation because, again, when I went to Symbol and I went, went on the other side, I came back and I apologized for a lot of stuff that happened in that project. Like, you know, him and, him and Jim Boyko were asking for stuff. And again, being a young program manager like you talked about, I didn't know how I was going to do it. So instead yeah. of saying, hey, let me think about it and get back to you, I was always arguing with them, telling them why they didn't have to do the stuff they needed to do. Mm-hmm. And when engineers did that to me and people did that to me when I was at Symbol, it used to frustrate me. So I literally learned from that experience. It was like, wow, this is what I was doing to those guys. And that whole experience of leaving and coming back just taught me how to be better program manager, customer customer focused wise. I would have handled Brian and and Jim 100% differently three, Mm. a year after symbol than I did before.
0: We always learn, we always learn. Hopefully we always learn. Speed of learning, anything your career that you would have done differently? Um,
1: honestly, I look back on it and I have no regrets, and I have nothing that I would say differently. I mean, the moves that I made, leaving and going to X learned leap years, and that year and a half of being in Hamanetics took me eight years further in my career at Nipro than than I thought it could. Mm. And then again, leaving and going to symbol. Learned a ton again in advance. My it basically made me better at what I do in both of those. So the overall career and again, twenty eight years with coming and going, being at NIPRO for all those years. I've never regretted a day being at NIPRO or J Bill. The company's amazing. The people I've worked with have been amazing through the years, you being one of them and having a lot of fun with the people that I work with. So no, nothing I would do different in my career.
0: Okay. That is good. That was good. Speaking of fun, uh what do you do for fun outside? I know uh we used to play basketball together. We still to, yeah, that, at, uh, that, that is was there, is that any of that still going on?
1: No, with COVID. No. It, it all died with COVID and the um, the St. John's Church is actually selling the uh the gym. Are they? It, I'm, I'm not sure if they've that sold that. it or they're selling it. Fun for me outside of work. For the long longest period I was a soccer coach. Right coached a lot of different levels, coached at, at the high school level. I was assistant coach for the Houston high school team. Um, that was a lot of fun. Coach club going on. Um, I coached club for almost 10 years. So I coached the you know, little kids. or uh, As my kids played high school soccer, it's hard to coach the, the younger kids because then I don't, don't get to watch my son play. So when my sons right. my sons were playing when I was coaching club I I only coached high school level teams and had some amazing teams and I met some amazing kids along the way. Mm-hmm. So it it's it was it was definitely a passion being around those kids, being around the game, being around you know and, and that type of stuff. That was one of the things. I retired last year from that, but I still I, I do miss it and it was a lot of fun. I'm a huge golf addict. I, oh, that's right. I that's play right. I a ton of rounds of golf and I enjoy golf and being. On the golf course with my kids and great friends that i play golf with that is playing playing good golf is always good but just being you know being on the golf course with with the key people in my life has always been one of the things i like the most
0: so you have the your soccer tournament which is a fundraiser for a foundation you have for your son correct maybe you can talk a little bit about that so
1: my son josh at 12 years old, collapsed on, he was at a soccer camp. He collapsed um, and passed away, literally the, almost instantaneous. Um, he was 12. It was uh, 2011. So we we created a foundation. He, he died, when we ended up finding out on the autopsy that he died of um, an undetected heart condition t- called hypotropic cardiomyopathy. So we created a foundation in his name. Um, and the goal of the foundation is, is A, to educate parents on undetected heart conditions. B, get everyone prepared for sudden cardiac arrest or a heart attack. So we, um, we donate AEDs to youth organization, non-for-profits and schools. We've donated almost 95 AEDs since the inception of the foundation.
0: We do, uh, you keep keeping those local, I assume?
1: Yeah, because there's, yeah. there's a lot of overlapping foundations. Just in okay. Massachusetts, there's three foundations that donate AADs. So we stay, we, we stay uh, primarily central mass. We also do heart screenings where doctors from UMass um, Medical University um, cardiologists in particular, um, come in, volunteer their time. And then a heart screening, we go to the local high schools. We go to Wachusett. We do what we've done. Every Worcester high school, we've done Gardner. We've done a bunch of different schools in the area. Um, and we screen, we try to screen 300 kids. We don't always get, people don't know us. Uh, Mm -hmm. so the first time we go to the school, we typically don't get the turn. You know, we don't get a big number. Typically when we come back, we get a much bigger number, but, um, we bring in AED, we bring in um, EKG machines, echo machines, and the cardiologists donate their time. and the, And the heart screening consists of we, we the doctors evaluate the family history for any any previous heart heart conditions in the family. Um, we have doctors do heart sounds to see if they hear anything. We do an EKG on every kid. And then a cardiologist, a pediatric cardiologist, a cardiologist reads the EKG and look at the the family history. And if they see anything that's out of kind of out of the out of the ordinary, we'll do an echo right on site. And then if there's anything that they detect or feel uncomfortable with, they'll recommend a follow up. And we we uh, we will help them find a cardiologist local or not local.
0: So how often? So you said some schools could do as many 300 kids. Is it typical that you'll find one or two out of the 300, or is it every third school you find somebody? So on, on average,
1: we find 10% of the kids that we that have some issue, whether it be high blood pressure. Really? Yeah, it, there's a lot of stuff that we uncover that way. Big, t- I'm going to call it big ticket items, and it's really not a good item, uh, idea to say that. But big items like um, hypertrophic, uh, hypertrophic HCM, I'm going to go with that because I can't say it what um, w- is what it's Josh okay. passed away of. We did we did identify okay. a kid that had HCM. We, um, one of Josh's best friends, we identified him at, with Wolf Parkinson White syndrome. We found you know enlarged day orders that they people needed to be watched. It's it, it just it's a it's a lot of things that come out and again mm-hmm. they're undetected. I can't say we saved anyone's life from any of these screenings, but. Okay. From, from, from the answer is we've made people feel more comfortable is what I'd like to say.
0: You said it was HCM is what Josh had? Yes. So they found at least one or two people with that. What is the prognosis? What is the treatment? What do they do? You know, Bert, I hate to
1: say it on HCM. I, I don't know what the surgical, I, I didn't think there was anything other than like a heart transplant to be done. And I hate to say it on a stupid uh, medical show they talked about some type of surgery that I had never heard of. Okay. Um, okay. I didn't really pay attention to what could be done because Josh was gone. So we actually, our first heart screening was um, UMass, UMass doing it for my family. They took in my four remaining kids and they did EKGs and echoes on every one of them. And my, my third child, my, my son, Adam, he was detected with what's called long QT syndrome. Um, and again, there's nothing that they can do surgically or it, at this date, it, at this point in, in science and medical evolution, there's nothing they can do for him surgically, but he's on beta blockers to keep his heart rate down.
0: Okay. So there is something that they can do to reduce the chances of, yeah, reduce, re- basically minimize
1: pressure. the risk of, um, him going into arrhythmia.
0: Okay. Were you by any chance watching that uh, Bills Bengals game last year when it happened? When uh, was it, DeMar Hamlin? No,
1: I wasn't actually. He wasn't. Um, okay. So the son that has long QT syndrome texted us and basically said, "You got to turn on the TV." And it was kind of overwhelming. I was, I was, you know, it always makes me happy that they save somebody, yep. Um, yep. but it also makes me sad, right? Because we didn't, sure. because we sure. didn't save Josh. That's- Natural. Um, so that was, that's an interesting phenomenon that, that uh, commotion Cortis is, is what happened with him. It's an interesting phenomenon. It it kills a lot of people um, annually if they don't have AADs right. and they can't get the, um, the, the, the person's heart back in a regular rhythm. So that's why we donate AADs for stuff like that. Like I'll tell people that the kids play Little League, does your field have, in AED, because baseball players, lacrosse players, commercial cortis is very common in both of those sports.
0: In Josh's case, was there an impact to nope. his chest, or just... No, there wasn't.
1: Okay. No. Nope. So, HCM is basically an enlargement of the cells, so his, his heart really wasn't compressing the blood well enough to get okay. through, and it wasn't oxygenating. Um, I mean, silly, they would, it was a 9 o'clock camp, and he was just... They were just doing a warm-up drill, and Adam was behind him. And he basically told Adam, you go in front of me. I don't feel good. And the camp council. so Adam went and the camp counselor said, go to Josh and Josh just collapsed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. I remember seeing the email about that and definitely. So it didn't, you would, you didn't would, affect me nearly as much as it affected
1: you. Obviously, but uh, definitely everyone that has kids, it affects and it's the weirdest yeah. thing. I mean, yeah. it's just kind of everyone I hate to say it, I'm everyone's worst nightmare. You don't want you don't exactly. want to be in my shoes, but you can everybody can empathize with it happening and they just don't want to they don't want to think about it anymore. You basically right. takes your breath away and then you basically go back to your life when you when you think about it. I miss them. So you, like I miss them every single day, but oh, I'm sure. it's one of those Absolutely. things. But we do run the fundraiser. Our largest fundraiser is that soccer tournament. And actually, I was just going to bring that up. It's on the field that he passed. I hate to say this. It was, it's on the field that he passed away. We do it every year. We break the, the football field into 16 small-sided soccer fields. And this year we had 82 teams play. Our largest year was it. we had 120 teams. It's, a, okay. it, it's become kind of a community event. People that know us and know of the tournament come back every year. Because yep. it's a very low-key event. We have great raffles. We, our, our The local community really does a great job in helping us out by giving us great sure. raffles. We have music playing. We have face painting. We have a kid zone. You know, the kids paint their hairs. You know, the hair, we have hairspray going on, oh, colored hairspray. You know, the kids kind of make their own team uniform so it gets silly and it has, you know, this flavor of fun. So, to me, I, I, I call that day Christmas for me because it's such a great memorial to him because he just loved sure. to play. And I just love to sit around and just watch everyone having fun.
0: Well, you said a few minutes ago you retired from, I think it was coaching. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. So, but you haven't completely retired from soccer. You've still got uh, this little soccer tournament that you run every year. Least, uh, was it. Um, Columbus Day weekend. It's the Sunday of Columbus said? Day weekend. Yes. Okay.
1: I need Monday okay. off to recover from the day.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's just, uh, you know, emotional, stressful, great. You know, just highs, lows, all sorts of. Not yeah. lows, but just a, a lot of work, a lot of good hard work. Yeah, a lot of good hard work. All right, and the uh, the name of the foundation. We'll get that on uh, the name of the foundation in, in show notes is the Josh Thibodeau Helping Hearts Foundation. Okay, and uh, I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, and what I will also do is invite people to donate money to that because we got it there for you. And uh, up to two hundred fifty dollars of total donations, I will match. Thank you very so, much. I Appreciate you're that. You're welcome, Ralph. You're quite welcome. Uh, let's see. I think we kind of wrap it up. I do have my uh, my grab bag question. Okay. So I have ten. I have ten questions. You pick a number from one to 10, and that's the question you're going to get. Eight. Number eight. What was your first car? Anything notable about it? The first car
1: that I I got was a Nissan Sentra. Um, The first car that I drove on a regular basis was my parents' two-tone orange and brown Dodge Omni. Ooh. It was the ugliest think- car on the planet, but we didn't <laughs> care. It was wheels; we could go anywhere we wanted. It oh, was perfect. Right. But yeah, my first car was a a Nissan Sentra.
0: the The first car I drove was the sister car to the Omni, the uh, Plymouth Horizon. <laughs> yeah, we just, just had light blue; it wasn't two tone, just light blue.
1: <laughs> the, you 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 put them next to each other. You can't you take the labels off. You can't tell which is which.
0: Oh yeah. Sure, they just you know, going down the same line, and the last step was Dodge Label, Plymouth Label, Dodge Label, Plymouth Label.
1: Oh, my God. I love that car. It was so ugly, and I still love it. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, I think uh, anything else on your chest that you just want to say to the world, engineering-related, or anything related? No, Bert. This is kind really it largely wrapped up with uh, what's closest to your heart as your uh, foundation for Josh. Thank you. Probably not a bad way to stop or start, end, whatever. Thank
1: you. I appreciate
0: it. Ralph, this has been fun. I uh, we need to see each other more often. I was just thinking, last time I saw you was like five, six years ago when I was still at uh, when you were radio, the When radius? you were yeah, it doesn't feel that long ago.
1: Yeah, the, the I got. We all moved all over the place. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, Ralph, appreciate your time. Thanks, Bert. And uh, thanks for to having talk me. Talk again. You're welcome. Have a good one. Bye bye. That wraps up today's episode of the Beers with Engineers podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to like, subscribe, give a rating, and most importantly, tell your friends, whether they are an engineer or not. Happy to have them listen. Any comments and suggestions are welcome and encouraged. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast or know somebody that you think might be a good guest on the podcast, please let us know that too. Until next time, this is Bert saying goodbye.